I think we should. So I think we should try this thing. Um, I've been listening to uh, like goal hanger podcasts. Are you listening to Empire? Because that's become my new favorite. I love Empire. I'm obsessed <laughs> with Empire. Wait, I'm. I know we're supposed to start the podcast, our podcast, but I am hooked. I'm hooked. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, I'll I'll be running and I'll just be like, fucking 1857 really fucked up the Empire. <laughs> No, but in all goal hanger podcasts, they all go um, with me, uh, William Dalrymple, and then you go and with me. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Okay, we, you yeah. you start you start it. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris with me, Nafkoti Tambarat, and with me, Chris Newens. <laughs> that feel good. It felt great. Um, <laughs> you, but of course, what does not feel great is that we do not have our usual third co-host, Rachel Kapelki Dale, with us. Um, she has been laid low by the movie Consumption. Um, she's coughing blood into a handkerchief, and we hope that she'll come back soon. <laughs> yes, which means it's uh, that means COVID, obviously. It's <laughs> <laughs> trying to give it a cinematic flair. <laughs> in in movies in the future, someone will cough blood into a handkerchief. Oh that's God, I know that's that's. Oh God, I just realized that's what's going to happen. One <laughs> night it'll be. Someone kind of like smelling a cup of coffee and going like, I, 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 I can't smell anything. Like, it's, um... oh, 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 God. Is this bread or is it a sponge? <gasps> <laughs> and that'll be it. Now they'll be written out of the movie. That's um, it. <laughs> for a week and then they'll come back. <laughs> and now it's time for This Week in Love. So this, this edition of This Week in Love comes from a conversation I had with a friend of mine as it usually does, if I'm being honest. Um, and she works in movies. I'm not going to talk too much about the specifics of it. She's doing it. So she's doing an interview for this big film production studio. And they, she's being interviewed to take on a job that basically means that she would watch all the movies that are presented to them. And then she will decide which ones she thinks this production company should really put their weight behind and push to get distributed in France. And so on the surface, it sounds like an incredible job, right? Like her, if she gets this job, her role will be to watch movies all day, every day, and then present a written report about whether or not she thinks it's good or not. But this is a really tricky thing to do because she was talking about how for a different situation that she was in, a different festival or something, um, she was asked to give her opinion about whether or not a movie should be distributed or not. And she really unequivocally was like, this is, no, no, we're, <laughs> this is very bad. And it became one of the highest grossing movies of the year. Um, and again, I will not be giving specifics because she's still in the running for this job. Mm -hmm. But what she was saying was that even though the job sounds great, and as long as you love movies, as long as you're smart, you should be able to do it. It's actually really, really hard to predict where trends will go. Um, and so we were talking about the ins and outs of being a tastemaker, essentially, right? Deciding where where people's tastes, where people's opinions will go. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to talk about this. And this is a very kind of like, this is a leap for this week in love, but instead of it being a relationship or like, I love this or you love that, how does one go about predicting what a people will love, right? Like, so instead of this week in love, it's like this month in love for this country. Yeah, I think this, I, I think it's a really interesting question. <laughs> it's just my hunch on this. Um, which obviously it has to be, but my feeling is is that it 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 obviously comes kind of from both 
directions like i mean you decide what people are going to love but it's also just how much this thing is pushed and how well it's marketed and that kind of stuff i think but you're also deciding basically like where those marketing and financial resources should be directed so there's a little bit also that at least for you the merit has to be such the value let's say the value and or the merit that you're saying we should push this because mm. at the end of the day, if something is a dud, it doesn't matter how much money you pour into the distribution, to the publicity, it's not going to do much, right? Like, and if and, and and actually, even if it does, I guess I also wonder actually how much of you have to decide will this have greater resonance later on? Like, whoever decided that Avatar the movie should uh, James Cameron's Avatar should yeah. be brought to cinemas, yes, it made a ton of money. I literally keep forgetting there was a second one. And I forget about the first one too, even though I did see the first one and it was huge. Like again, both were huge box office successes. But well, did it really change the conversation? Do we care? Did you so you didn't see the second one? No, I didn't. I mean it was awful. Like I, <laughs> it's funny that you you know, you bring up like James Cameron. He obviously uh, he gets it right. Like he he can make movies which are ostensibly quite bad but they clearly tap into something that people like really want to watch i don't think that the first avatar movie was great by any no. stretch of imagination but it was you know i, I can see why it was so successful mm-hmm. the second one was also like super successful but um was they like, had almost no merit to it as a- <laughs> when i watched it that being said, I've seen a lot of movies since then, and the second Avatar movie, it really sticks in my head. So maybe really? my yeah, maybe my critical faculties of thinking it's a bad movie are wrong because actually there's there's so much of it which I still remember annoyingly. More than the first one? Like, did you watch the first Avatar? Yeah, I've I've seen both of them. I'm no in an equal way to the the first Avatar. I mean, for me. Um, getting off topic a little bit talking about the avatar movies and my feeling about it's um the thing was about i think i guess both of them is that neither of them felt quite like going to a movie it was like going to an event it was similar to going to broadway or the west end and watching a play and you're caring about the story you're getting this whole visual experience and you're immersed in this world for a time so the usual ways in which we might choose to judge how good a movie or a story is didn't really seem to matter because it was just such an extravaganza. And this mm-hmm. could kind of go back a little bit to um, An American in Paris, which I think had that quality as well. Uh, and dare I say it, to a lesser degree, Moulin Rouge. Um, <laughs> how dare you, lesser? How dare you? <laughs> I've, I've made my case for why these two movies are doing wildly different things. <laughs> but what you're saying as well, it um, reminds me of something that uh, a friend of ours, uh, Ferdia, uh, uh-huh. told me about, like, um, he, so he's a, a writer and he went to, uh, after he'd completed his MFA, he went to, like, a fair of agents. And there were all of these agents who you just got to go and talk to. Um, and um, and he, he said he got into a conversation with this one agent and the agent was saying to him, literally, we just, we just don't know what's going to do well at all. We just mm. we, like, you know, roll of a dice. 
Right. And then there was a pause, and then the agent went like, apart from this one book idea that we've had, which uh, it starts with a married couple, and uh, they um, they both wake up suddenly, and they're in a warehouse, and they're chained to one another. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and the wife reads a note, and there's a there's a. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a a dagger in between them and there's a note between them and the r- wife reads it and it says only one of you is allowed to go out of here alive and the agent said and that and that we know would work <laughs> <laughs> so um, first of all we should also mention that Ferdia, our friend has a book coming out in january called glorious exploits so which does not have this scenario in it, but still very good. Still very good, everybody. Please go and buy this book. <laughs> right, that is. But I, like, that does sound like a a great premise, I guess. But that's a that's like an idea. Like, that's an idea versus watching. Because I think that I think to a certain extent, I can almost I would have felt confident saying a movie is good or not based on just a first view as opposed to a book a a novel which I do actually think to really be able to say if it's good or not you need a couple of read-throughs to give it an honest estimation whereas I don't know I think a lot of movies you get a sense of whether or not it's going to be liked and whether or not it's going to be good or bad is what I would have said originally before having this conversation with my friend I'm not thinking about it I'm thinking I mean I you know, the movies that we've discussed in this podcast but even movies that I know are huge hits and movies that have done terribly and it inexplicable right like i mean that's i I think that's kind of like where the whole idea of the cult classic comes in as well movies that didn't do well the time that they came out but have second third fifth lives later on um but i think to discuss this too maybe we should take off the table anything that's like a james cameron or any of the movies that, that you said like that are kind of event movies right like marvel movies also i mean now there's the talk of like marvel fatigue but i think those movies kind of don't count not because they can't be good but because they are above and beyond just, oh, is it a good story? Is it well acted? It's the experience of it. You're absolutely right. Especially if it's 3D. Um, it feels it feels almost closer to a VR than to movies the way that maybe we traditionally think about them. Well, and furthermore, those movies are just going to be so, I mean, not just so like heavily marketed, but also they've got like marketing behind them because people will go and watch them because they've seen the other ones. Exactly. But just to say that even like, even with all my like, you know, what you know eclectic tastes there are still the same things that i'm looking for right there are the same there there are certain things that i gravitate toward versus other things um you know i'm always gonna love a wild take on a situation right like as soon as the movie just got goes off the deep end it's one my love forever i'm always gonna love kind of talky movies i love movies that have a really specific speed you know acting really matters so all that whereas i'm not so great about like, I don't know enough about camera angles. You know, I never studied film. I'm not someone who's going to be like, oh, I can really see that they use like a 4.0 aperture on that camera. Ooh, the sunlight never looks so good. <laughs> I think something I've been thinking about recently is that like, when you get older, you you watch, you know, if you're interested in movies and you carry on watching movies, you will have like clocked up a lot of movies by mm-hmm. a certain age. And so they start to be a little bit less special. I mean, you, you still get kind of a few like diamonds in the rough or whatever, like that you mm-hmm. weren't necessarily expecting. So I, I forget what you said there about like, you're looking for movies which go off the deep end. Right. And like for a lot of the movie going, you know, public who are, you know, I mean, 
like teenagers, people in their early 20s, they don't need movies to go off the deep end because right. they're just happy to kind of like, it's all relatively new. Like mm-hmm. when you haven't seen loads of movies, you're happy to just kind of get that, the kind of the classic experience. And like, you know, I think about the first time that I ever saw Star Wars, I just mm-hmm. it blew my mind. Like, but, right. and, and arguably, like if I had seen uh, a modern Marvel movie before I had seen Star Wars, and Star Wars, like right. later on in my life, I'd be right. like, "What's?" I mean, I, I I say this like I, you know, I was born in nineteen sixty. I know. I wasn't going to interrupt you, but I was like, "This is the episode of revealing you're ninety-seven years old." This is a testament to how like good and modern Star Wars was uh, when it came out in nineteen seventy-seven. That even like most movies in like the 1990s when I was first going to the cinema mm-hmm. weren't anywhere near as exciting and not as nowhere near as kinetic. I, th- I suppose is really the, the thing right. that Star Wars really has. It's kind of constantly moving. You're, uh, you're getting kind of exposed. It's obviously a great story. There are good characters, mm-hmm. but like a lot of the directorial tricks, which happen in that film and the special effects, like you don't see them until like movies in the kind of like the early two thousands and sort of like, you know, even, even past that again, where you get a movie of that kind of like energy. And now every movie has an energy, which is way beyond that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. So I, I, I I would almost worry that kind of like you, you can get to a point where you've seen too many movies to really be able to gauge which ones are going to, you know, you could probably pick like the absolute best because I mean, I'm still not like, you know, I, I can still watch a movie and if it's really, really good, it can like move me and excite me and everything mm-hmm. like that. But, like it takes either the absolute best movie uh, or a really unusual movie for me to, to be excited by it. Or you're a jaded grump and you decide that <laughs> I hated this movie. I guess this means that these people will like it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the, maybe the best way to 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 fill this role, and I don't want to fuck up my friend's job chances. Like, I want her to get all the money, but would be actually to have, um, like, I, w- I was going to say three people. So to have someone who's maybe very young, someone who's more like around our age, and then someone who's much older, um, just to have like three different takes, right? Because I hadn't even thought about that. Um, I think along with Rachel's film degree, the thing that we've talked about most or I talk about most is like how I basically didn't start watching movies until I was almost 20 years old. So like, I think I'm still, I still find movies so exciting, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not over them. I'm, I can't believe, I still can't believe I get to go. I still can't believe that I could just go to the movies at any time. And like, I'm just allowed to, it's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm just sitting there watching people make up what? What a privilege. Um, but I understand that at some point I will finally get over the excitement of that and it will be a little bit more what you're saying, which is like a movie has to be so great or so weird or so off the wall. But maybe if you have different ages and kind of different experiences, that might be a better way to gauge if that is the job that and I'm guessing this is not, the, of course, the only production company that does this. Um, maybe that is the best way to gauge what actually will sell, right? Because you you want to hit because because I'm also thinking just about demographics, right? It's not younger people who are making cinemas, who are keeping cinemas open, right? You are really depending on, quite frankly, an aging population of moviegoers um, mm. because we've learned to our behest that younger people do not actually go to the movies at all. But the, yeah, I guess the, the the question is, is like, you know, who knows what's going to, yeah, what's, what's going to succeed and what's going to be a great movie? Like, it's, it's really hard 
I think um, we I think we solved it. I I know, and I should get yeah. the job. <laughs> That's our conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Naf gets the job. <laughs> And now it's time for the love story. Chris Newens, take it away. This week we are talking about um, the Eric Roma classic movie, uh, Ma Nuit Chez Maud, uh, otherwise known as My Night at Maud's. I think it, I, we need to start with a little bit of a confession here from me. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, Eric Roma is one of my favorite uh, directors. Uh, I love the film Manuel Chemour. Um And when I suggested it for the podcast, I had completely forgotten that it is not set in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> As a way of like clawing back from that, I think that the intellectual milieu that this 1969 uh, film came from was very much a Parisian one. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just by the way we've just lost all our listeners in the Provence so well done <laughs> well done okay now we're officially the snobbish Paris podcast so. <laughs> sorry Clermont you know yeah, it's, it's set in Clermont-Ferrand um, which is um, one of one of France's bigger towns which is uh, often forgotten I think and for good reason uh, sorry we just <laughs> lost we lost the the last two Sorry, guys. We definitely lost the claim on all these people who've heard Manuel Maud. The great, the great film of Clermont Ferrand and the uh, provincials talking about it. But no, we locked. We hold you and the town in disdain. Yep, we do. Bye. <laughs> Not true. I've I've never been to Clermont Ferrand. I never have either. <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely. It's in it's in the Auvergne, right? You're asking the American? I, bar- <laughs> I barely know where France is. It's a miracle I get back here every time. I don't know. <laughs> but I was thinking, actually, before we get into it, like, why did I think that uh, Manuel Chemaud was, uh, like, based in Paris due to, mm-hmm. you know, my memories of it? And I've probably seen this film about three, four times. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the last time would have been about two years ago. So, and, uh, you know, and I was thinking, well, there are a lot of night scenes, a lot of interiors. There are scenes in cafes there's a lot of smoking they're obviously speaking french it's black and, white. <laughs> and, they're, and they're speaking french in a very like i know what you mean though like first of all they're speaking french in a very specific like um uh, kind of parisian movie star twang of that period um it's really hard to it's hard actually to articulate what it is it's not an accent but movie stars of this time in french cinema really do have a very specific intonation a way they emphasize so in that sense it doesn't feel different from other movies that are set in paris and actually a lot of the you know there's a lot of driving um there is a lot of driving yeah and it's at night i know what you mean like and in the beginning because i thought it was set in paris too i was like I, at some point i was like Paris used to be so small. And then I was like, wait, <laughs> when was this movie? Like, it wasn't that small in the 60s. <laughs> so small and in the mountains. <laughs> when the snow happened, I was like, it used to snow like this in Paris? Climate change is real. <laughs> um, Naf, did you know very much about Eric Roma at all before uh, you watched this or? I've seen one of his other movies years ago, um, La Collectionneuse, I think mm-hmm. is what it's called. Yeah. And I did not like it. And so when you suggested this movie, I, as I told you, very honestly, um, 
I was not, I was not excited because again, I did hate that movie, but because Eric Romer is one of those directors that you hear about, you know, he's really, I mean, I know we're going to hear more about it from you, Chris, and I don't know much about him at all, but he's just a name that comes up again and again. If you're someone like me who loves movies and, you know, really wants to get to it, especially if you love French movies. And so I kind of, but I, 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 I was happy to have an excuse to watch a different one. And I knew that this one in particular is one of his, one of his most famous and I think considered to be by many, like one of his best movies. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is the sort of, I mean, like I personally, have uh, loved Eric Rummer for years and years. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I suggested this movie is because it is probably his most famous one, along with the film that he made immediately after the, this, which was called Claire's Knee. Um, yes, I've heard a lot about that. Which, you know, if I get my way, even though that is also not set in Paris. Well, it's set uh, on Claire's knee, I believe, right? Like the whole movie is set on a kneecap. <laughs> and it's so interesting what he does as a metaphor with that. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> Spoiler, Claire's not even a person. So crazy. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about, before we get into talking about the, the movie itself, I'll just talk a little bit about Eric Rummer, um, who um, was part of the Nouvelle Vague movement from the 1950s and 60s. He was um, the probably the oldest member of the, like in his own personal age, the oh. oldest member. Um but he was actually one of the last ones of them to start making movies. What was he doing before then? Well, uh, I'll get into it now. Okay, sorry. I, well, I'm, sorry. I'm going to get into it uh, right from him being born. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was busy being born, learning he French. Born in, uh, he was born in Nancy in 1920. I also hoped maybe he would have been born in Paris, but no, born in Nancy. <laughs> Um, and his um, his birth name uh, was not Eric Rummer. It was Jean-Marie Maurice Chérard. I guess that's oh. how Yeah. Um, he, he changed his name. Um, like, the moment that he became anything in the public eye, he changed his name uh, because he came from, and this is important to the film Mani Chez Maud, um, uh, because he came from a very uh, strict Roman Catholic family. It was so strict that anything that he did in the world of the arts, he wanted to do under a, a nom de plume, like another name. Um, and so he created the name Eric Roma uh, from two other artists who he really liked, um, neither of whom I had heard of, but um, the director Eric von Stroheim uh, and a writer called Sax Roma, um, who the writer Sax Roma apparently was behind. Um, Fu Manchu books. Just quickly about like Eric Rummer's early life uh, back when he was uh, just just uh, Jean Marie. Um, he obviously born in 1920 in Nancy. He was drafted during World War Two. Didn't end up doing any fighting, um, and then the French were defeated, so he got to concentrate on his studies. Moved actually uh, in the kind of early 1940s to Clermont-Ferrand. So, which might explain why uh, Clermont Ferrand was chosen as a place for this movie, although there are a lot of other reasons as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, His parents had moved there, so he moved in with his parents, um, and he started uh, studying for the aggregation. Like any good French boy. (laughs) 
check any famous French person who we cover in this podcast from now on. Right. Did they study for the aggregation? And what how, and, and how did they do in the aggregation? Exam? Right. <laughs> we go to the board, we get their notes. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't listened to uh, last week's podcast, the aggregation uh, is basically the absolute top examination that you can take in France, um, which officially is designed to qualify you to become a teacher. But the reality also is that most of the huge, huge kind of like intellectual stars of France of the 20th century will have taken and probably passed the aggregation. Um, Eric Roma did not pass the aggregation. Oh, twist. Well, yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's a really difficult exam. Um, so, even Eric Romer couldn't do it so no one Eric get discouraged Romer. don't worry <laughs> um, nevertheless he so he did become a teacher anyway uh, he taught in Clermont-Ferrand for a little bit and then moved uh, up to Paris in the mid 1940s where he actually wanted to become a writer he was obsessed with being a writer um, he did publish a novel I think in 1944 uh, although oh different places that I have read uh, suggested it could have been 1946. <laughs> uh, was The novel didn't do particularly well. Um, but he was still loving literature and wanting to write more. And during that time, he went to start attending screenings at the Cinémathèque Française, um, which at that time in what's now becoming the late 1940s was just this hotbed of all these people who would then go on to create uh, the Nouvelle Vague, the new wave cinema of France, which would so be cool. Um, so he was he was going to the cinema, the Cinémathèque Française, uh, with the likes of Jean Luc Godard, Francois, uh, Francois Truffaut, Claude Chabrol, and all the, all of the other people. Um, and then they'd obviously be talking about the movies which were being screened at the Cinémathèque Française afterwards. Um, and in fact, like the rest of them, um, he began his real career in cinema uh, as a journalist of cinema, as a critic. Mm. Um, he co-founded a film magazine in 1950 called La Gazette du Cinéma, uh, along with Jean-Luc Godard. It didn't last very long, and they actually all transferred to the far more famous Cahier de Cinéma um, in 1951. He was a Cahier de Cinéma dude. Okay, I didn't know that. Just a Cahier de Cinema dude. He was the he became the editor of the Cahier de Cinema in 1956. So, although Eric Rama he did make um, a few shorter films uh, in the 1950s, uh, his career in cinema only really gets going in the 1960s when he's already 40 years old. Okay, um, and he leaps straight into that with a cycle of films called the Six Moral Tales, uh, okay. of which. Uh, My Night at Maud's is technically supposed to be the third one in the cycle, although he actually made it fourth. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. is um, it, does it does it matter like what order we see them in? I I don't really know. I like I think it's to a degree. I think the thing is is that like so La Collectionneurs, which you mentioned earlier, that mm -hmm. was uh, that's number four in the series, and that's a mm -hmm. color film, right? Uh, Manuiche Maud is a black and white film. So I think like in the first two uh, in the series were also both black and white. They were sort of like short features. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So I don't think thematically exactly you need to watch them in in order, but like there is a sort of a sense of like at least black and white to color, which mm-hmm. uh, which sort of makes sense. It's why I think Manuiche Maud is supposed to be third. But actually what happened was is that Le Collectionneurs would have been the first one that came out in the cinema. And in fact, the first one of the um, the moral tales that anybody had really heard of. So it had a real kind of like Star Wars like quality. Okay. Le Collectionneurs, episode four. Is <laughs> moral tales. Um, and then Manuiche Maud came out as a sort of a prequel to that. Um, but I mean, like, it's a very impressive artistic feat because he basically decided that he was going to make six films uh, in like the like late 1950s. And then he really stuck it out and he makes all of them before he then moves on to making other films. And he's not made any feature films before this. He's not made any feature films before this. That's incredible to just be like, I guess I'll do six. I mean, yeah. <laughs> while, I'm, while, while I'm doing it, I might as well just make a fucking series, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, but, you know, he's you know he's an older guy. He's definitely been working in the artistic world for a while, so he kind of he must know himself enough that he feels that he can really get these six films mm-hmm. out. Um, all six films in the six moral tales, incidentally, are all inspired by the same story. Oh my god! Which was actually. Um, actually a story from an American silent film from 1927 called Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. And he decided that he was... <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why that... I just feel like, of course, Eric Rober chose that and was like, I'm just going to make five to seven movies about this, I think. <laughs> I don't know if we've uh, done a spoiler yet, but um, he's very pretentious. I mean, oh my God. Like... <laughs> There's no getting around it. I mean, and this, I think, goes back to the idea of um, me saying that it felt very Parisian because it, it has that, like, I feel that particularly Manuiche Maud is almost the archetypal French art house cinema movie. Yeah, That's <laughs> how, I think, I think that's how Parisians think they sound at parties, right? Like, I have been at gatherings where people have sounded like this uh, and speaking even more vapidly than the characters in this movie, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's crazy. <laughs> so the, the plot essentially, or the, the vague plot of um, Sunrise, a story of two, a song of two humans is um, a man. Uh, well, sorry, I suppose these are all of his moral tales, rather a man married or otherwise who is already committed to a particular woman is tempted by a second woman, but eventually he returns to the first woman. It's also worth saying that uh, although they're called six moral tales, they don't really have morals to them per se. <laughs> Eric is really testing me today. <laughs> He's really testing me. Three is four, could be five. There might not be morals. <laughs> Story's the simplest shit ever, but he needed six tries. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, okay. instead, instead, they're basically stories of people trying to make moral choices. Uh, so with that, I don't know if you're ready for this, Naf, but we're going to leave Paris and talk about Mind <sighs> Let me put on some beautiful knitwear. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to be in Clermont. <laughs> okay, so we're going down to Clermont-Ferrand. 
and we're going to meet our main character, um, who is very serious. Mm-hmm. He's a Catholic. He's an engineer. Um, he's played by Jean-Louis Trintignant, um, who I've definitely seen in other movies, but I hadn't recognized him as being the same guy. He's in a lot of big movies, including like Un homme et une femme by uh, Claude Chabrol. Uh, he's in The Conformist by Bertolucci. Um, and his career really spans the the latter half of the 20th century, even into the 21st, because he's then in Amour by Haneke as well. He's also in, um, to a callback, he's in a Bardot movie um, and God Created Woman. Mm. He ends up being her erstwhile husband in that movie. He's there, and it's one of their first for both of them. So he's he's a he's a big actor. Um, sure. I felt though when I was watching this, he looks a bit like Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> sort of like a slightly kind of like swarthier, like you know, right. heavier set Macron. <laughs> That's true. He's like Macron, like but before den- like dentistry really has come into its own. Yeah, exactly. it's how it's how I feel. <laughs> you got a kind of like a strong smoldering charisma to him. Um, yeah, and he has one of those faces too, where any smiles, it's always a surprise. Um, not always in the best way, but you're just like, oh, I thought you were brooding and mean. Now I think you're brooding and mean, but trying to hide it, and you think you fooled me with that smile. <laughs> I think you've charmed me, and I'm concerned. <laughs> Now, the character who he plays in this movie, I don't think actually ever gets named at any point. Um, I'm not sure. I... Wow, I didn't even think about that. I, don't, I think you're right. In the, uh, in the articles that I've read about it, though, he's referred to as Jean-Louis, which is obviously the actor's name. So mm-hmm. I'm going to call him Jean-Louis because I think it's just easier to, to do. Right. So we'll call our, um, our brooding, serious Catholic engineer Jean-Louis. <laughs> um, and so... When the movie opens, uh, he's just he's got a new job in Clermont-Ferrand, uh, where he doesn't know anyone, uh, and he's not even living in the centre of town. And the first few scenes that we get um, are of uh, of this guy in his obviously very cold apartment, and then he's mm-hmm. driving into town. He's being lonely. Um, it's just before Christmas. Um, in, you know, which really ups that kind of like chilly and lonely quality because the, the town's all spangled in Christmas lights. But obviously, because it's a black and white film, you don't really get the color of Christmas. You just get mm-hmm. the sort of almost the alienation of the the lights and the chilliness of it. Right. Um, and also in the beginning of this movie, it's it, it's a French uh, Nouvelle Vague movie. There's no soundtrack really to speak of. There's no songs. There's uh, just a lot of sounds of uh, car engines and cars driving over icy mm-hmm. cars. And in fact, one of the first conversations we get in the movie um, is where one of Jean-Louis' colleagues is talking about a car crash which happened recently. Right. Uh, Everyone is always talking about ice on the roads. You've got to be careful. Um, I I really now don't think I'll ever forget the word verglas because everyone's always talking about, oh my God, the verglas is so terrible. Um, and church, right? Like Jean-Louis is is major in church. Like he's, he's always there. <laughs> yeah, he's always going to the church. But I, just to talk about the um, this conversation about the car crash, I think this is mm. one of the things that I really like about um, like Eric Roma movies is it adds this like tiny little bit of tension. Um, because you've got scenes of him in the car, scenes of it snowing, a, a conversation about a car crash. And you're adding this kind of, this question, like it's, it's the kind of the Chekhov uh, gun on the mantelpiece. Is there going to be a car crash, which is going to be really important in this movie? 
I'm giving a spoiler here. No, there is not. Uh, okay, that's that's really like, and I know we have a lot more to go, but just to say that um, I did not feel tension not even once in this movie. Like at no <laughs> at no point like did any of this feel like Chekhov's. Got, it felt like not even Chekhov's hamster, right? Like I every time they talked about it, I was like. All right, I, yeah, we get it. It's winter. Like it's just interesting, though, right? Because you're right. In the hands of a different director in another movie, that absolutely would be that little bit of potential foreshadowing. Mm. And this, I was like, well, look at that. More boring white people talking about boring white people shit. All right, like I just I didn't even occur to me that that might be some sort of symbol. <laughs> Enough. I'm going to be telling you all about Rummer and why I think he's so good. And it's all about, in in my mind, the things that I love so much about him is that it's the the tiniest things that you can do to create a story mm-hmm. and like and when you get attuned to Rama's way of doing things you're yep. like stakes are so small that they are stakes like this is sort of like half of a, a sirloin or something there a quarter I hope <laughs> I just was thinking like I hope Eric Romer really appreciated his fans because you, you, you're going. You're saying to me, it's the tiniest of stakes. Isn't that great? That is usually what we're encouraged not to do when creating stories: is to create too <laughs> tiny of stakes. And somehow, Eric Romer's fan base is like, "Isn't that amazing? What he did? You <laughs> barely give a shit, and that's why it's art." <laughs> I love it. Romerites, rise up! <laughs> this is your moment. <laughs> it's not being relaxed in the movie. You know that there's a story happening. You know that. Something that could go wrong, but it's probably not going to go wrong. And this this happens again and again, um, as well as uh, another kind of like over overarching thing about Roma, which I I should have maybe said earlier. Um, his movies are incredibly boring, like on the surface. <laughs> I'm like, really biting my tongue here. <laughs> they kind of masterclasses in being boring, but with just enough to keep you uh, going through. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, so we've had this, uh, the introduction to the character driving around in the snow in clermont Ferrand, uh, And then he's going, as you said, now, yeah, to a church service, uh, church service, because um, he's a big Catholic. Mm-hmm. When he's at this church service, he spies a blonde woman in the con. It's very important that she's blonde. Yes, uh, a blonde woman we in the congregation, and he decides at that moment, seeing her in the congregation, that he's never met her before. He's never talked to her. We get a little voiceover. We only get a couple of voiceovers in the film, mm-hmm. uh, but at that moment, he he sort of says, "I knew that that woman was going to be my wife." Right. Okay. You know, then he leaves the church, uh, and then you get what what could almost be described as like a little bit of a car chase scene. <laughs> you are so generous. <laughs> in which uh, he leaves the church. He's in his car, and he spies her. This blonde woman you see in the church, you to talk to. She's on her little uh, motorized bicycle in front of him, and um, we race through very slowly the streets of Clermont-Ferrand. This is exactly why Eric Rammer is so good, because it is a car chase. <laughs> yeah, in the most literal of terms, his car is, I guess, pursuing lackadaisically her bike. <laughs> well, you don't know whether he's deliberately pursuing her or uh, whether it's just sort of incidentally pursuing her. Yeah, you know, yes. And I want, like, not to talk about it right now, but I want to put a pin in that. What you just said about you don't know why or what his motivations are. That is... 
ding, ding, ding. That's my thing about Romer, but I can't, but let's keep going. <laughs> let's go into this big air quotes car chase. <laughs> Where, by the way, he's blocked by a car that is trying to go into a driveway and he just goes beep, 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 beep. <laughs> That's like the big moment of the scene. <laughs> but then she gets away. Like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Uh, I say that the, the Mission Impossible franchises could learn a lot from it. <laughs> so she gets away, possibly never to be seen again by our hero, Jean-Louis. <laughs> then there's a bit more of him kind of walking around uh, cold Clermont-Ferrand. Um, <laughs> and he bumps into a, a bumps into an old friend of his. There's a lot of bumping into people in this movie, like right. uh, which I'll get to as well later. An old friend of his called Vidal um, at this uh, cafe in uh, Clermont-Ferrand. Uh, Vidal comments about their meeting. Hey, it's weird that we should have met each other here because it's a cafe they've established that neither of them usually go to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> a little bit like Sherlock Holmes here. He says, um, <laughs> now listen, we never meet each other in the places that we usually go to. So it's only logical that if we bump into each other, then it would be somewhere away from our normal routines. Which which makes sense, which I, I got to give it to him. John Louis not wrong. I mean, that's a good point. It's, it's, it's very smart. And it's yes. sort of like his like elementary moment. It's proving that there's a, you know. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> save the cat moment. Uh, we realize we're not just, uh, we're not just following. <laughs> we're not just following this lonely loser who's, uh, you know. <laughs> Going to church services and uh, following random blonde women who he's going to marry. There's a, a brain up there. Um, yeah, not just not just a, a hat hat rack, whatever hat stand. <laughs> um, but it's also important because uh, Jean Louis is very interested, and the film is very interested in ideas of probability, um, and more specifically on the uh, the writings of uh, I can't believe we haven't mentioned him until this point. <laughs> century catholic philosopher and mathematician blaise pascal <laughs> as rachel pointed out in her notes one shot of this movie is just the frontispiece of one of one of his books les pensées like that's a whole like <laughs> all that shot is the whole screen is the front page and then we're done <laughs> <laughs> now, i mean i would argue that's a, an important shot because if you say it's your favorite part of this movie i'm, I'm out i'm done <laughs> So anyway, um, Vidal and Jean-Louis, they have, uh, I can only assume it's quite a nice chat that they're having. They go to a concert together. They then go and have dinner together. And um, Vidal says that he's planning on uh, seeing, in quite heavy quotation marks, a, a friend the the next evening. Right. Um, which, uh, which also happens to be Christmas Eve. And he invites uh, Jean-Louis to come with him to meet his friend that next evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jean-Louis like quite rightly because he's uh, he's quite smart. He's like a friend, a, a female friend, and Vidal's like, yeah, yeah, she's uh, and you know it's established that what this uh, you know it's it, it's a love interest for Vidal, uh, who a lo- a kind of a casual lover who he has slept with before, um, and. And Jean-Louis is like, well, why are you inviting me to her place on Christmas Eve? Like, surely I'm just going to mm-hmm. be a, a nuisance, a third wheel. And he's like, no, no, Vidal says. Like, if if um, 
if I go alone, then I'm just going to sleep with her again. And uh, that really wouldn't advance our relationship. It wouldn't get anything done. Like I'm, I'm interested in talking to this woman and uh, I, you know, so I actually need you there. So we have a proper conversation. Uh, and there, and and I will say also that like it, it uh, sorry to interrupt, but their relationship veers in intimacy according to Vidal's telling of it. Because at some point, Jean Louis asks him like, "Why don't you marry her then if you like her so much?" Because he basically says like, "We have this love affair, but now she's like, she's one of my best friends ever." And he's like, "Oh, we could never get along on a day to day basis." So based on this encounter, Jean Louis and we as an audience would be forgiven for under- understanding like, yeah, this is all hatched or buried. They're old friends, right? But nothing. Whatever. Like, there's a little bit of a spark. She's gorgeous. She's wonderful. She's a pediatrician. But, yeah, we've discussed the marriage thing, and we decided not to go through with it. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely a lot of um, there's a lot of people in this movie, in general, of people not quite saying what they mean, I guess. <laughs> I think that's... Yep, and put a pin in that, too. Okay. <laughs> okay, so although he's initially a little bit reluctant, Jean-Louis, he's like, yeah, all right, I'll 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 come along. But... um. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Christmas Eve, though. I'm going to uh, Midnight Mass, first of all. So first we'll go to Midnight Mass, and yeah. then we'll go to see uh, your friend at her place. If it wasn't established already, John louis is a bag of laughs. Like, ooh, his, his, <laughs> yeah. his, his friends are like, you know, I'm feeling a little bit bored. Who should we call? I think John louis <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> nevertheless, he's uh, amazingly magnetic to uh, a lot of people around. It's all that brooding that he does and thinking about Catholicism. And Pascal. So anyway, uh, <laughs> and Louis, they, uh, they go to Midnight Mass um, and then they're going to go and meet uh, Vidal's friend after Midnight Mass. So it's already very, very late in the evening. Um, it's after midnight and they go to uh, <laughs> right. this friend's place, this friend called Maud. Now I want to point out another bit of tension that uh, it's possible that Naf missed in this. <laughs> But I think there's a very real possibility when you hear about this friend of Vidal that it could be the blonde woman who um, Jean-Louis was uh, lusting after in the church. I mean, I had a question mark. I'll give you that. It wasn't, I get, I was, I want to say I was very calm and unflustered watching this movie. I didn't feel any tension. <laughs> and I think, you know, I've established I'm a pretty anxiety-ridden person. Weirdly, my anxiety was fine. <laughs> I wasn't worried about anybody. You weren't worried that he was going to turn up and that his old friend was already having an affair or a relationship with this woman who he had decided he was going to marry. It truly was in the, in like the calmest, quietest way possible. I thought to myself, it could be the blonde woman. And then there my wondering ended because I knew Eric Romer was going to show me exactly who it was. And then I would go, huh, whatever happened. <laughs> but, you know, it, at the very least, it got you to turn the page. That's um, true. My eyes stayed on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I did not falter. <laughs> but it wasn't the blonde woman. <gasps> it's not. <gasps> Instead, yes, it's Maud. Um, <laughs> the titular character of this movie. Who's, who's brunette, um, who's, in my opinion, gorgeous. Yeah, um, a divorcee, though. A divorcee with brown hair is what I've written. <laughs> Which and is, an atheist. Oof. And an atheist, yeah. And an, and and like and not just an atheist. According to Vidal, her like it, he he says something like the way that she's not religious is almost a religion in and of itself. Like she comes from a long line of avowed atheists. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that she's not Jean Louis's type. 
He's looking no. for blonde Catholic, not a divorcee. <laughs> God, what a boring, what a boring Tinder profile. <laughs> Despite um, an unpromising start, we're going to leap into what is essentially the kind of like the the main action piece, the sort of the big set piece of the mm-hmm. film. Yep, which is the night at Maud's. <laughs> And I, I will say I did have high hopes. I did, again, I was intense, but I was like, well, this is the title of the movie. Surely this will be. Also, I want to be clear. We're an hour into the movie when the fucking night at Mods happens. An <laughs> hour into a movie that is not quite two hours. Please continue, Chris. I just wanted really to get that, that out. Are you really that far into the movie? I'm surprised. We're so far into the movie. So... By. <laughs> oh, God. We get, we get Pascal. We get two church services. Okay. Oh, right. And your car chase. And then we get into the night. <laughs> it was all very chilly. And like the church services, you really feel cold when you're watching the church services. Yeah. Nothing looks fun about it. It's all like, God, no. like there's none of the glory of Catholicism there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this in this scene where you've got Vidal, who is the sort of erstwhile lover of Maud and Jean-Louis arriving. And then they have a chat. The, the three of them have a quite a long chat, um, okay. which is effectively working. I think that the scene works on like a couple of levels, this very long scene. Uh, on the one hand, it is clearly driven by the tension of Vidal being more into Maud than he let on to Jean-Louis to begin with. Right. He's clearly like really mad for her. But Maud is not so into Vidal and is in fact, immediately quite flirtatious with Jean-Louis. Um, so that's the sort of like the overall kind of like macro narrative of the scene. But then what's actually happening is that they're mostly talking about philosophy. I can't stress enough how how quite correct Chris is. <laughs> that is what happens. <laughs> if you want me to be more specific, they're talking about Catholicism and even more specifically, um Blaise Pascal, Pascal's Wager. Now, now, did you know about Pascal's Wager before you watched this movie? I did know about it, but I refreshed my memory because I realized, oh, I'm actually really going to have to understand. Well, actually, do you have to know anything about the wager to understand this movie? Is a whole other thing. But if I understand correctly, <laughs> Pascal's Wager is that if when deciding whether or not you believe in God, Pascal's saying you you you're wagering, and he decide and he thinks it's best to wager on the side of like living your life as if God does exist, because worst case scenario, God doesn't exist. You gave up a few things, but well, whatever. You had a good life, and then best case scenario, God does exist, and you totally did a great job. You lived according to Christian precepts. Good, good for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, good for you because you know the, you get to go to heaven. The end of it is like yeah, you get to go to heaven. So it's like even if there's only a one in ten chance that God does exist then if you believe in him like you know the the benefits are literally infinite like you you get to go to heaven or if you didn't believe in him then you're going to hell so it's a far better idea to believe in him than Mm -hmm. not believe in him just because of this sort of like end uh end game um after all like um, it's what everyone what everyone prefers is that when deciding whether or not to love you, it's best if all your friends go, well, she might get really rich and famous, in which case my love for her will pay off in the end. That's what we all want from our friendships and our, you know, our adoring <laughs> and our circles of friends. So this is great. Thanks, Pascal. 
Jean-Louis, however, is uh, he's quite anti-Pascal, actually, in the conversations that they're having. Um, he basically says that Pascal is a little bit too dry for him. Uh, because Pascal which is rich, which is rich <laughs> of John fucking Louis. Pascal is a bit dry. Oh, really, sweetie? Let's go to mass again. <laughs> I mean, it goes to show how dry Pascal must have been. You do feel that, like, underneath his incredibly dull, like, uh, exterior, there is this sort of raging, passionate heart. Maybe. I'm raging. raging is going a bit far. You're doing great, Chris. You keep telling <laughs> us about this evening. <laughs> he goes on about how Pascal denied himself pleasure. He, he uses, like Jean-Louis uses the example of the wine that they're drinking. And he's like, would Pascal have liked this wine? Um, and he, I mean, Pascal, uh, even when, you know, when he was close to death, he even denied uh, mathematics, um, which Jean-Louis, by the way, is really into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, I've, I'm kind of bored moving to this town a few months ago, so I've been dabbling in mathematics. Vomit. Vomit, right? Pascal was like, maths are a, a distraction from God. And this, in Jean-Louis's eyes, is not very Catholic because it's not embracing all of the great stuff that right. God gave us. But, uh, you know, I think it's pretty obvious where this is leading. Um, the subject of uh, sex and, you know, gets breached. Yeah. Um, you know, are you denying yourself the, the pleasures of sex as well, Jean-Louis? Um, Jean-Louis, he, he, I think this is slightly for us as well. He makes it pretty clear that uh, he's no virgin. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> he's... Um, he lived in South America. Okay, he lived in he lived in Canada. So yeah, yeah, your dude fucked. Okay, your dude fucked up and down America. Okay. Yeah, he's like, this is still with uh, Vidal and Maud, and they're all having this chat. And he's like, no, like I've I've yeah, I, I've I've known the sins of the flesh, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, and enjoyed it, and yeah, had a blast. But now he's trying to renounce them. Um, but in the background of this, it's not just about him being a good Catholic. It's also about him having earlier that week spied this blonde woman who mm -hmm. he's, uh, you know, decided he's going to marry. Right. Um, so there's a little bit of a subtext going on here um, that he's kind of making his own Pascal's wager on the the woman who he saw becoming his wife, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, say, um, you know, because he obviously doesn't know that he's definitely going to marry the blonde woman. He just thinks that if he does, there's the possibility for infinite happiness or the, the, the of true happiness. It's, it's hotting up here with, uh, with Vidal and Maud. Like there's definitely the, the possibility of sex on the table. Um, at least or it's in the air. And he's sort of saying, no, I'm going to, I would reject that because I'm, I'm wagering my my bet of this person like who i met in the or saw at the beginning of this movie actually well maybe i'll get to this later chris but <clears throat> and i don't know if this is important now but there it's brought up a few times that jean louis jean louis believes in predestination mm. unlike for example the blonde who we'll meet later on does that like but I, I wasn't quite sure how we were supposed to take that within the confines of this love story like is does that mean that he thinks because if, if i remember correctly the voiceover 
I think it's pretty definitive. Like that's when I knew I was going to marry Francoise. So is that, so is he, so that, so actually that is interesting, right? Is he actually wagering? Like if he believes in predestination as he says he does, then theoretically everything is plotted out for him, right? Regardless of what he does and chooses to do. Yeah, but I think there's, you've got to believe that there's a sense of um, faith in that idea of his predestination. I mean, like you can't, you know, he's, and I think this is also something to talk about with Eric Roman movies is that there is this sort of like faint fantasy magical element which does exist within them despite their incredible ordinariness. Mm. Uh, but yeah, there's still this degree that he is like betting on that. Like it's 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 a question of faith rather than absolute certainty. Mm-hmm. So he's still like he's still saying like if only I believe in this possible you know, marriage with this woman who I've not even talked to, um, then it's worth sacrificing all of the things which might distract me from that, I suppose. Right. Okay. I got you. Which, you know, is a problem in this situation because Maud by this stage has really got her eyes uh, dead set on, uh, on, on Jean-Louis. Yes, she does. Yeah. She's like physically rebuffing the doll at this point. Like he keeps trying to get close to her and she's like, at, like at some point she just pushes it. Like it's actually kind of funny. She just pushes him and he falls on the bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And furthermore, Maud has already, she's ch- uh, changed into a kind of like nightshirt in order to kind of like show off her legs. Yes. And she's got into her bed, which also happens to be in her sitting room. Uh, she's right. like, no, no, I, I want to keep the conversation going. Uh, but I want to sit here in my bed while we're having this conversation. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to bed because when I go to bed, I always get, in, I always sleep naked. Yeah. So don't worry. This is me just like, this is my conversation outfit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it definitely is charging the whole, uh, the whole atmosphere quite like erotically, I suppose. Uh-huh. Um, um, it's also started snowing outside by now. Like, yes. um, I mean, it's very late and um, they go and have a look out the window and uh, they see that it's snowing, and, and she's, she then Maud makes the declaration that Jean-Louis can't risk driving home uh, because he's got a place which is all the way outside of town. Um, so instead, that he should uh, stay the night with her, um, with Maud. Um, which but- is hilarious because Vidal is so wasted. And for him, she's like, okay, bye, drive safely. <laughs> she's well, not concerned about him. But that's true. That's part of the subtext of what's going on. Like she, yeah, yeah, it's barely even subtext. She's like, you can stay in the room. Uh, you can stay in the room next door here to hear Jean Louis. Don't worry. At that stage, Vidal, uh, as you say, is completely wasted. He's like, oh, I've left the window open at my. Uh, my- <laughs> Probably, I need to go. I need to go and change the window. And uh, yeah, like- the snow's it- coming in. You know how it gets. <laughs> She's like, okay, but <laughs> see it, see it, Vidal. <laughs> Vidal's gone, and uh, it's just Jean-Louis who's uh, trying to stay chaste and Catholic, and Maud uh-huh. clearly trying to sleep with him. And uh, Jean-Louis goes, okay, so um, where's the room next door? Then show me to that. And Maud goes, there is no room next door. Dun dun dun. <laughs> And Jean-Louis also realizes that Vidal would have known that. And the reason that he left um, is because he's realized that Maud has chosen him. It, it's safe to say that things are really uh, 
really steaming up at this stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, though Jean-Louis is doing all he can to deny the fact that things are steaming up. Yeah. Um, In a way or, that makes it even more awkward than this movie already is. Like, it's actually really hard to watch. So, like, to have someone just be like, basically say to another person, fuck me, and the other person being like, God, like, where's that spare room you mentioned, huh? Like, no, I really... Yeah, it's a nice place you got here. Thank you for the wine. <laughs> She's literally in bed going like, no. <laughs> Come to me. <laughs> well, as she promised that she would, she gets naked. Uh, That's true. She, like, she she's takes, off her, takes off her top because she always sleeps naked. So. She always does. She, she, in fact, she doesn't understand how other people can sleep with all this cloth getting in the way. Oh, she's so, like, <laughs> perturbed by people like that. Ew, it's so crazy. <laughs> she stays under the blankets, though. So, you know, no one's seeing anything. Um and Jean Louis, and, and she's like, "Come sleep with me uh, in the bed." Uh, and Jean Louis is like, "No, it's okay. I'll sleep on the chair." <laughs> yeah. By the way, this really feels like I'm giving a very blow by blow account of this movie, uh, which I am. But also, like, these are big kind of plot points. It doesn't. Yes. There's nothing bigger than what's going on here. Really think um, about that. Like nothing bigger than what we have described so far happens in this movie. Okay, keep going, Chris. I just want that to be very clear. <laughs> the sort of like the tension as to whether he's going to be sleeping on the chair or sleeping God. on the bed is keep using the T word, and it's like astounding to me. It is clear that they've got some kind of connection. Um, that. I think that might be debatable, actually, as to like how good a connection that they have. Right. But they're definitely talking, and Maud talks about her ex-lover, not her husband, mm-hmm. uh, a man who she really, really loved. How he died in a car crash uh, a year ago. Right. And there's the the car crash theme coming out again. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a car crash at some point in this uh-huh. movie. Mm-hmm. Is- <laughs> <laughs> from the car crash. No, no not going to be a car crash later in the movie. <laughs> nope, don't worry. I mean, don't expect it. <laughs> don't hope. We're moving towards the absolute high point of the drama of this movie right now. God, <laughs> now you're using the D word, drama. <laughs> so, yeah, look, the point is, Maud wants Jean-Louis. Jean-Louis also wants Maud, but he knows that sleeping with her would go against all of his principles because he's a Catholic and because he's also met this woman who he's going to marry, the, the blonde woman. That's it, yeah. At this stage. Um, so he's on the chair, she's in the bed, um, except it's also quite cold and uncomfortable on the chair. And mm-hmm. um, although he's still in his suit, uh, he does, and he's still wrapped in this blanket, which is right. sort of wrapped around him kind of over and over again. He does go and lie on the bed next to Maud, not with her under the sheets, but um, he's sort of on top of the sheets, wrapped That's in the it. blanket. Exactly. Also, it's very important that he does take off his tie and his jacket <laughs> and his shoes, but not his belt. That detail is maybe <laughs> where I felt the most tense. Actually, I, you're right. Like, there was one moment of tension for me, which is, is this belt coming off or not? And then it didn't. I was like, so he's just sleeping, belt on? So uncomfortable. Moving on. So that was my, for me, that was when the T word really sprang to the fore. 
One of the other small themes of this uh, film is that uh, I feel that Jean Louis never really gets a good night's sleep. It's always a bit. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um. So anyway, this is the the crux of drama, and they both they fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Um. And then it's morning. Right. Uh, the light is pouring in through the windows. Uh, you can tell it's uh, we, we've still got him on top of the sheets, wrapped in his blanket, and moored naked under the sheets. And you can tell that it's pretty cold now. Um, and I think we've all been there in this situation. You know exactly what it feels like. You're on top of the sheets. Maybe you've fallen on t- uh, fallen asleep on top of them. Mm-hmm. Sort of like he gets out of the blanket, he climbs under the sheets. Right, right. And then it doesn't take very long for Maud to make her move. That's it. Exactly. Because she look, she looks fast asleep at this point. But Maud, Maud apparently has been <laughs> awake all night waiting for this moment. Actually very adolescent. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, And yeah, like, here we are. This is the erotic high point of the movie mm-hmm. in which they make out with one another. Right. Him in his suit, she's naked. For all of about three seconds, I think yeah. I might be breaking it a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, and then suddenly Jean-Louis realizes that, no, he's going back against all of his principles and he right. can't possibly do it. He's, uh, and so he, he leaps out of bed mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> and um, he puts an end to it. Um, and I think that the, the kind of the erotic payoff in this moment is that there is very brief moment of nudity in that we get to see one of Maud's nipples uh, over the top of the bed sheets, which uh-huh. I think is a kind of very studied kind of French film director uh, idea. Exactly. It's a tease, but we're not getting, we're not going vulgar. Um, yeah. And she gets really um, upset. She gets, you know, she like storms off to like to the bathroom. Right. And then he tries to kind of talk to her and she says something like, no, I like people who know what they want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um and <clears throat> and and so that that's it. That's the end of the night at Mords. Not the movie. There's still Not so movie. much left to do. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a, a miles to walk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's basically it's all wrapping up now though. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> so anyway, like um He's uh, Jean-Louis heads off home, though he has agreed to meet with Maud and Vidal later that day, which I guess is Christmas Day for a walk in the snow, as you do. Um, and just before he's coming to that meeting that day, um, Jean-Louis bumps into, can you believe it, but the blonde girl from the church. So again. crazy. On Christmas. Yeah. Um, on Christmas Day. Who knew? And this time... He's full of, because of his night with Maud, he's full of confidence. So Mm -hmm. he just goes over and just decides to try and chat her up. Um, And this is actually what I was saying as well about one of the other things that I really love about Eric Roma movies is that, you know, like despite, as I said, it's ordinariness, there's like this kind of small level of magic. Mm -hmm. Despite everything is so boring and mundane, kind of. (laughs) There is this sort of like, Un- unlikely things that happen like these yes. coincidences and he's bumped into this this woman on christmas day and in fact the coincidences from this point on they really start to pop- pile up right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um 
So he learns that the blonde girl's name is France, Francoise. Uh, she's a 22-year-old biology student and, of course, a Catholic. And, mm-hmm. gasp, she lived in the <laughs> same town, sorry, the same out-of-town village as Jean-Louis does. That's it. What a coincidence. It's like they're made Exactly, because everyone up until now has been saying to Jean-Louis, that's so far, that's really far. Who Basically, like, who would live there? And it turns out, oh, yeah, the two Catholic weirdos live in this place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And despite the fact that she's a little bit uh, put out by the fact he's approached her, she nevertheless agrees to go on a date with him the next Sunday. Right. Um, Then he goes uh, to see Maud and Vidal on the walk. And um, this time, it's a little bit more relaxed between him and Maud. Right. They go shopping. They make dinner together. Make out. They they have a yeah. good long pitch, like um... while they're still hiking in the snow, which actually, by the way, looks like the mo- it looked like the most miserable Christmas ever. It's so cold and so. Sn- I was like. God, is there nothing to do in Clermont besides like walk in this shit? Um, and then and it's like lasting kisses they have on like while they're waiting for the other two. Um, and then and then he's like, but these are just platonic kisses. <laughs> he's like, these, these, no, he says these are just friendly kisses though. And I was like, oh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> but then obviously, kind of during this connection, I think it's when he learns that um, she's going to be leaving Clermont Ferrand to go to Toulouse while they're making dinner. Yeah. 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 So it's another kind of like small coincidence, mm-hmm. like ah, uh, like Maud was never the was never the right woman for me because she's right. like not only is she not going to be living in Clermont Ferrand anymore, mm-hmm. not only does she not live in the same village that I lived in, right? But she's now moving to 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 lose with for with for a job that her ex husband got helped her get as well. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Because remember that she's a divorcee, and this does eventually come yes it actually crazily enough this will pay off this actually will make narrative sense um but i think also that adds to the list of reasons why she's not for him right like it's not it, it's it's still like the taint of this ex-husband is there they're obviously still very present in each other's lives they have a child together but so after he's learned this uh, news about uh, her moving to toulouse uh, we get this moment which sort of stretches manui Maud into what i can only describe as kind of like lord of the rings level of <laughs> When he's coming back from that dinner, and who should he bump into again on Christmas Day? But Francoise, who's on her way home, almost science fiction level of coincidence. <laughs> um, and obviously, he knows where she's going at this stage. So right. uh, Jean offers her a lift back to her place, her student flat in the village, which mm-hmm. is where he also lives. Um, when they get back there, this is as close to a car accident as you get. Uh-huh. Uh, you get stuck on the ice. And it's so slow. It really is for being like, you might, are you okay? And you should keep going for, oh, 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 should we, I think I'm stuck. Yeah, I think I'm really stuck. I think you're stuck. Like they have this conversation, like a, for about two and a half minutes. <laughs> it's like a kind of proxy sex scene, basically. Yeah. <laughs> are you okay? Is it good for you? Oh, it's not. Oh, no. We're, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. A lot of uh, engine, impotent engine noises. Yeah. <laughs> and him saying things like, I think I'm almost, no, no, I'm just here. <laughs> I'm just in. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to get out of the car to walk the final distance to her apartment. Right. He's like, we'll we figure get- it out tomorrow. We'll get help. We get to her place, which is 
just horribly bleak, basically, in my mind. Although he does say at a certain point, it's very cozy in here. But it doesn't look cozy. Yeah, it doesn't look cozy because it's student housing, right? It's like um, it's like this whole building apparently that's for students. So, and she's like, yeah, and and then she's like, yeah, like everyone's away because it's Christmas. I forget her pretext for not leaving. And so she's like, so there are lots of empty rooms, and I'm like, do you want to check? Before you just let this random ass dude just sleep in someone else's bed, Goldilocks? Okay. <laughs> but in what is kind of like a little bit of a mirror of the night that he spent at Maud's, um, he spends the night there at her place. He makes her tea. Um, yes, that's true. He says one of his rare talents is making tea. It looks terrible. But then again, I'm not a tea person. So maybe maybe it looks, I don't know what you think, Chris. Did you think his technique was extraordinary? Yeah, I'm sure it's fine. I couldn't get over how kind of like bleak and cold the place that she's living in was. Like. And I thought the kettle was, I, I, I was like, is this the 20th century? Like, what is this cast iron? It was so strange. <laughs> but, you know, but like as opposed to Maud's, which is like, it's very plush and warm and kind yes. of nice. And it's, it's clearly a lot more inviting than staying over at Francois's place. Um, and with Francois, there's no... There's no suggestion that they're going to have sex that evening. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. He, like, he's not even, and he's not making the moves, right? Like, he, you know, he knows she's Catholic. That's what he wants. And at some point, like, they, they have the briefest of conversations that, of course, is about, like, Catholicism, predestination, blah, blah. She doesn't believe in predestination if you care. And then she goes, well, it's getting late, isn't it? But, like, in a very school marmy way. And he's like, oh, uh, sure. She doesn't smoke as well, right? Like, um, Maud does. She does not. So, um, and then she's like, okay, be on your way. Bye. There's the room. Let me show you. Yeah. But then the morning after, um, he, he actually even tries to kiss her. Um, yes. Like he sort of like, uh, quite aggressively kind of puts his arm, um, to the other side of the door where she's trying to get out from, mm-hmm. tries to kiss her. She refuses it, but she says, let's go on a date, uh, next Sunday after church service. Mm-hmm. We then see them go on the date um which i guess is fine but there's something that she's like withholding from him so yeah at this stage and finally she realizes he realizes the reason that she's being a little bit kind of like reluctant is because she at a certain stage had an affair with a married man right right um and he's like well that that's fine (laughs) yeah that's the thing he's not upset he's like okay let's 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 just never talk about it well but then he and then he tells her that actually the day that i saw you i was just leaving a woman's house myself yeah and he implies that he actually had sex with maud definitely or he just he doesn't clarify that like the way that he phrases it of course you would you would you would assume oh of course they slept together um and she's the one who says can we just agree to never talk about this again yeah yeah exactly and then it fades to black you think it might be the end of the movie it's not quite the end of the movie (laughs) there's more left (laughs) it's more to say apparently (laughs) (laughs) i was fine also just never talking about it again i agreed with francois i thought that was the best route myself but nope. <laughs> uh, we're five years into the future. Uh, Francois and Jean-Louis, they're now married. They're on a beach. Uh, they're with the child. And another crazy coincidence. They bump into Maud on this beach. <laughs> this is bananas. Cuckoo, but <laughs> what? <laughs> I can only see, like, 
Gandalf kind of pulling the strings. <laughs> Maud tells Jean-Louis that she's actually remarried now, but it's it's not going well. She's so chill about it, too. She's just like, yeah, we don't really like each other. Well, anyway. <laughs> How are you? They, they briefly, so Francois has gone on to, to the beach with their kid. And so. she's weird. Like, there's definitely, like, I'll say tension is between the two women. Like, there's obviously something. Yeah bizarre yeah. when they see each other like Françoise is not really looking at her and when Jean-Louis says to her like oh this is my wife Françoise like the way that they kind of acknowledge each like it's it's there's something weird here and then yeah and Françoise kind of makes a quick getaway with their son down to the beach yeah and Maud and Jean-Louis they they reminisce about that night that amazing night that they spent <laughs> yeah yeah, one night, the kind of the night that would just live with you forever. Oh yeah, they realize how important that night was to both of them, and then uh, Maud's like, "Okay, bye." Um, yeah, that's it. So they're like, they really say to each other, "See you in five years," I guess. Like it's, <laughs> that's the vibe, and that's what they say. But I was gonna ask you something that she says is what tips him off to what will be kind of the. The final mm-hmm. revelation of the movie, but I can't remember. I can't remember how we and he both become sure about what we're just about to learn. Like what we'll, what what we because we learned through that conversation, right? Yeah, um, I don't know why I'm being so coy about this. Like we're definitely spoilers for this fucking 1960 movie. Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm being so careful about my phrasing. She's definitely she says something which makes it clear that the man who Francois had an affair with. Was Maud's ex-husband. That's it. Because actually before this as well in the movie, Vidal meets um, Francoise with Jean-Louis and they have a really weird vibe too. And actually what we think and what Jean-Louis thinks too until Francoise lets him know is that her affair was not with Vidal. But mm-hmm. that seems to be the first the first clue, right? That seems to be like where the story's going and that's not where it's going. Yeah. It's another one of those weird coincidences though that... Um... The final scene of the movie, or the final shot of the movie, Jean-Louis goes to join Francoise on the beach, and Francoise is, is acting a bit weird because obviously she's seen Maud. Uh, Jean-Louis realizes that uh, Francoise has had an affair with Maud's ex-husband, mm-hmm. um, but he also realizes that she's not going to admit it, or that almost for her sake, he decides to once again talk about how he had once had a fling, an affair with Maud. Right. So, because it seems like at first that Francoise is worried. She is worried that um, Maud has told him that she slept with her husband, right? Like that seems to be her, that seems to be the thing that she's really worried about. And then at some point it becomes clear that that's not what's, it, that's not what she sent him, right? Like he gives all these banalities. And actually that's the second voiceover in the movie. And if I'm being honest, so this part of the movie, I think is really great. I love this. It's in voiceover that we hear him say, at, I, at that something like at that moment, I decided to not tell her because he, he's getting he was going to tell her that I didn't sleep with her. But yeah. something about how she reacts, something about her, how, something about Francoise's being, I guess her emotional whatever. And in the voiceover, he says, "That's when I decided to not tell her that I hadn't slept with her." He just he willfully decides to keep the secret that probably and right and and I love I really do love that because it's left because that's how the movie ends and we are left wondering. Is it is it from generous motives? Is it from really petty motives that he doesn't that he makes the decision right then and there at this moment to not tell her? What is a yeah. great truth, actually? Like you know, this is like the opposite of a confession of a dirty secret. 
But there's something about all the circumstances that make it that it would almost be mean to tell her, I didn't fuck that woman. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then him and uh, Francoise and their kid go and swim in the sea. Yep. They like, yeah, they all dive in. Like that's it. That's yeah. Literally they all dive into the water. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, and that was uh, Manuiche Maud. Yes. So the <clears throat> thing that I really want to start with is, and the reason, so, and the reason why I didn't like La Colecciones, and the reason why I think this movie, and probably I think Eric Romer's style always might always baffle me, is I because you kept talking about what this character wants, what this character doesn't want. And actually, fundamentally, to me, it's actually not so much nothing happening in these movies, right? There are lots of movies that I like that we that many people like where nothing really happens, right? It's the fact that I... So, Rumors, um, it seems to be a direct... His uh, intentional directorial decision to have his actors perform in what, to me, comes across in an extremely artificial, deliberately stilted manner. Um... It's not it's not the same kind of acting, but think about it for those who've seen Wes Anderson movies, the way that Wes Anderson directs his actors to act, right? Like again, it's deliberately artificial, deliberately like a very stylized use of performance. And so, but what happens with Romer's movies, and I think the one of the reasons why I feel even more lost is that because I'm not French, I there's a part of me that's like, is this is this actually how <laughs> French people used to like talk? Like, is there something I'm missing here? I never understood whether or not anyone was, be- when they were being sincere, when it was supposed to be an act, when it was supposed to be deception, right? Like, and and my always, my never understanding why people were saying or doing the things they were doing is what drained the movie for me of anything even coming close to tension or suspense or anticipation. I just, at some point I was just like, it feels like all these people are saying these lines beautifully, right? Beautifully articulated. They all speak French very, very well, it seems like to me. But I I just don't, I just don't know. I don't know why they're saying these things. I don't know for what purpose. And at least in the case of uh, Jean-Louis, um, 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 Jean-Louis, the actor, like I'm blanking out his last name right now, I have seen him in other movies. So I know that he can do the more, um, yes, perhaps more acceptable version of acting, but I would argue like acceptable for a reason, which is that we understand why characters do and say the things they do. And I, I actually appreciate that. <laughs> like, I don't care if you guys think I'm old fashioned. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not I, like, I, I just like it. I like when people become other people and then we really get to know them and then their actions mean things. <laughs> like And this movie, I was just like, everyone just reciting at each other. They're reciting and reciting and reciting with the same affect, the same intonation, I don't get it. Like, not, I, I don't get it as in like, I don't get what you what you all care about. I don't get what you're trying to get from anyone in this, or if, from this situation. I mean, it, it's so difficult because I mean, this is, I, I really like it, despite the fact that I do recognize it is very dull. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but do you but do you feel that way with the acting actually like or because again it's not the dullness per se that is bothering me like do you feel like you do you feel like you get to know characters in this in this movie in, do you feel like these are real people uh yeah i think absolutely i, I mean <laughs> i definitely feel that maud feels like a really very real person i think that okay. she's um great in this film like i think that i mean like and part of that idea is kind of how difficult it is to know one another and know the different people's like motivations and and how we're sort of watching 
this happen almost like a real conversation mm-hmm. there is so much that like is not necessarily left unsaid but almost that they wouldn't even know how to say but they know uh, how to say everything else in right. excruciating detail chris what <laughs> what do you mean? They can't confront each other over the the things that they really are but that's all they do. All they do is confront each other about matters of religion and love and lying and deception. They literally, like, they that's they they say the quiet part out loud all the time. There's no quiet part except the snow. The snow is so quiet. <laughs> it's not really the quiet part that they're saying out loud. It's the um, that's the way that they can articulate the emotions that they have. But it it's a sort of an intellectual articulation of what are fundamentally sort of impossible to articulate feelings mm-hmm. uh, that they're going through. And there's so much going on under the surface um, that just can't be said. And so instead they wrap them in these like, you know, you know, philosophical uh, views or philosophical tracts or whatever, or right. kind of like, you know, so they're kind of talking around things because you just can't get at the essence of it. And, in my mind, the movie and watching it is getting at the essence of it. But this is it, it's an interesting thing in which, although it's a kind of like hugely like talky script and there's loads and loads of dialogue, it's not really the dialogue that we're following so much as the way in which they move around one another and the the sort of like the obvious things. Like I said, the you know, the the way in which the actual night at Maud's is working on two levels. You know what the desires of each of the characters are mm-hmm. and yet at the same time they're putting this philosophical um net over the top of that uh which is not which is sort of like a, trying to approach what the actual things that are happening are but they're only able to do that through the language that they have as these like you know provincial intellectuals effectively <laughs> you know uh, i I so I I love that idea. Like what you ju- what you just described is a hugely interesting project to me. Um, we um, we both have met people like that. Um, I, I I personally relate to this very much. And I think and hearing you say that makes me think the reason why I don't I don't I don't believe any of these people are actual people. Like that really like to me that is oh, that has been my problem with the two horror movies I've seen. I don't believe these people are people. I yeah okay I, all right well but then. Beyond that, how about the like the the themes of the movie and that idea of you know about that that does I think one of the kind of the central ideas is uh, this notion of like hold like faith in things and kind of like holding out for something better and sticking by your principles. Um, mm-hmm. I think structurally, there's something really interesting going on in this movie too, right? Because basically, we meet Jean Louis, our our main character. And then we spend, if not well, most of the movie, but also really like the imp- the big scene of the movie with one woman who we have been told already is not going to be the person. Well, we th- we hear that he doesn't think that's going to be the person he's going to marry. And then he ends up not being with her, right? Like she's presumably not the right woman for him. But what that does, but as an audience member, we spend most of our time with Mud. We're kind of on her side a little bit more because we get to see her more and we get to get to know her more up until that point. Francoise is just the blonde girl who's on the bike who disappears, right? Like we have no connection to her. We've never met her. And that I think is really interesting in terms of writing structure to, to present a female heroine to your audience and go, 
by the way, she's actually not the heroine. It's the girl who you haven't even met yet. Like, I think I think there's something, and because and what's interesting about that too, just it's interesting as, as writing structures, I said, but also for Jean Louis's character, I mean, this is where it ties back into what you were saying, Chris. We have to, he has to trust himself, and I guess to a certain extent, we have to trust that he's made the right wager. Like there's a beautiful woman who's literally naked in a bed in front of him, who we've been told also before this, like she's educated, she, you know, she's a pediatrician. His friend Vidal says she's a remarkable woman, right? And he even tells him like, the reason why I want you guys to meet is that I think you will both get along. Like he really, like in many, it's really actually Vidal's character is so interesting because on the one hand, he clearly wants to get with Mud, but then he he tells um, Jean-Louis at the beginning, like it's kind of a set, like it's almost like a matchmaking setup. Um, and so he gives up, he lets Maud go for a woman that, and we and we don't even get the choice, right? I think another, most movies, what they would do is they would introduce us to both of these women. And then we'd have kind of like, oh, no, who's, whose side are you on, right? Like the classic, um, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the people who are in Twilight, the movie, and I just can't remember it. What, Team Jacob and Team the Other Person, right? Like that's how you would do it, right? But in this case, we have, you know, there's a person behind this door, this mystery door, and then this gorgeous woman here. Who do you want to be with? Well, obviously, we're all kind of like, you idiot, just get with a naked, gorgeous woman, the smart, gorgeous woman in bed. But he's holding out for the mystery, right? He's holding out for the person that we don't know either. And so we have no idea if his leap in, of faith, if his like, you know, jump into the dark is actually going to pay off. Um, and that does feel like a, um, this, a cinematic portrayal of what faith in maybe the truest religious Catholic sense might be. Like, I, again, intellectually, I can kind of see how that's an interesting way to structure this. I think maybe not just uh, in terms of, like, uh, religious faith, but also there's this balance between, like, what you should do, what, what you mm. feel you do, and then what you want to do. Right. And uh, he's trying to choose between these two poles. And yeah. like, is the thing that you should do actually the thing which is better? And is the thing that you want to do actually worse? Um, right. And I think it's left unresolved at the end of the movie as to whether maybe the thing that he wanted to do, just kind of following his impulses, which is basically to get with Maud, mm -hmm. uh, is the is the better out would have led to the better outcome. Right. Um, and I think the whole movie, it's one of the things that 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 it explores, um, and as the idea of it being a moral tale, that's sort of questioning our own morals just generally like you know what we to do the things that like society expects of us and that we expect of ourselves or should we just sort of like adapt and like when we see something good like go for it mm -hmm. um and i think that it as a movie really articulates that very well as well as the interpersonal politics of just uh like the way in which physical attraction works between different people um and we're also uh, we're also asked to judge uh, we're also asked to rather question our judgment of who he is like so in the in the evening conversation mod says a few times like i'm really kind of almost um i forget how she puts it but something like i'm shocked by your version of catholicism right like you have you've had sex before marriage because he you mm -hmm. know uh, vidal kind of teases him about being a ladies man oh you should have seen him back in the day he had all these women running after him and he himself finally admits that he's had like a few like three to four i think he says like love affairs where he lived with the women in question and he tells the blonde later on um that th these affairs like ended kind of nicely right like no one really broke up with the other person so, but up until then but 
you could you could see him as being someone who has maybe seen the error of his ways and is really trying to lead as you're saying like a moral life where he does what he should do. And Maud keeps questioning this and keeps pushing back on it, being like, I don't think, you know, and when she gets angry at him and says, you know, like I like people who know what they want. Continually she's questioning, like, do you this is not what you want, actually? Like almost like on the surface, it seems like what she's saying is like, if you really believe this, I wouldn't push you. I really mm. don't, but I don't think you believe this. And at the very end, so and so the last voiceover where he decide where he tells the audience, like he decides to not tell um uh Francoise about the fact that he hasn't slept with Maud, you can see that in two different ways, right? Like you can take that wager. Like it's either a, a um a gesture of kindness, um, so that she thinks that they both because he says to her when he when he implies that he did sleep with Maud, he t- tells her, see, we're even at the beginning before they get married and all that. He's like, see, we're even, we're totally fine. You don't have to be guilty about it. So it could be a sign of generosity or it could be something that it could be something more sinister, right? Like it could be still human. I'm not saying he's a s- evil, but like a very human impulse to be like, I get to keep the moral high ground now, right? Mm-hmm. Like I really, I get to keep this. I get to keep this in my, like you can never, like I have something against you and you don't even know it. And so it might be a little bit of a tip to us to let us know Maud was right, right? Like he's not quite the perfect Catholic that he's purported himself to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I could go on talking about this for uh, for ages, but I think we need to. <laughs> Let's bring that- in our guest, Jean-Marie Eric Romer. Come on down. Oh my God. Yeah, come, <laughs> come sit next to me. Yeah, you're good. No, no, not that close. Not that close. Okay. Yeah, we're just talking about your movie. If you want to talk about it, <laughs> um, yeah. I, so I still think that this uh, and a lot of other Eric Romo's movies are all great. <laughs> so. And I think Chris is great. And <laughs> which um, Pascal would, uh, using logic, um, suggest that uh, Naf thinks that the movies of Eric Romo is uh, great as well. Thank you, everybody, <laughs> for joining us. <laughs> That's what Pascal would have said. Like, <laughs> Pascal's going to be a guest on our next episode. We couldn't get both. That was too much money. We can't afford that. <laughs> and now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. And Chris, that's me, what... Who are we going to be marrying, fucking, and killing this week? Well, Chris, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> By the way, I'm actually still here, and I could have helped, but I've decided to let Chris. I'm I'm on vacation at this point. <laughs> I wa- I watched the movie. I did what I could do. <laughs> Our options for this week are because it's a, a movie which is largely about conversation, mm-hmm. or has a lot of conversation in it at the very least. Um, conversation as preamble. Conversation as epilogue, which I suppose means pillow talk, and conversation as main event. Um, no, no, by the way, it doesn't have to be pillow talk. It could be as you interpret it. It could even be conversation as appetizer, main course, and dessert. Okay. Yeah. As you want. Um, all right. The, the, so what, what do you think you're going to, who are you going to be marrying, fucking, and killing? It's a great, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just going to dive in. I think I'm going to... Mary conversationist main event. I'm going to fuck conversationist preamble and I'm going to kill, kill, kill conversationist epilogue. I think that's, 
I mean, that makes sense. That's almost how they're uh, <laughs> like designed to go. Mm-hmm. But like marrying the main event sounds quite a lot of effort in some ways. I feel like conversation can last a really long time in a good way, right? Like there are lots of other attributes that you meet that you have in people where it's like, this is great now, but who knows in 10, 15, 25, 5 million years, but a good conversation, a good a, a good conversation partner, hopefully will stand the test of time. Um, I do not enjoy conversation as an epilogue. It's just a lot of stuff has already happened. I'm tired. I need a nap. I'm a little bit sweaty. I just, I don't feel like that's where I shine in my conversation, but preamble, fresh, just, you know, just got here, have a fresh glass of champagne. Yes. Fuck, 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 fuck. (laughs) A lot of conversation about the weather and conversation as preamble. Like, I mean, in like, oh, ew, no, not, no, no. A lot of like, so how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. No. Uh, oh no, Chris, you've been you've been you've been rambling through the preamble the wrong way. I gotta tell you, no, no, no. You always start with something shocking because it's early in the night. You know what I mean? Like you have plenty of time to recover. If you do make a, maybe it's the wrong question, it's the wrong opening gambit, but that's the time to experiment, right? But not as epilogue, right? Like you don't want to be in a position where it's 3 a.m. and then you, you know, you're like, oh, I'm getting comfortable. Let me say something, and then you get kicked out into the snow in Clermont. That's too much. That's, I think that's fair enough. I mean, <laughs> you're saying that your preamble might be, uh, hey, so what do you really think of the work of Blaise Pascal? Like, That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to argue. I mean, conversation as main event, as long as it's a good conversation as main event. Right, then. right. And I think that's what I'm assuming. I'm assuming that conversation in these three categories is always great conversation. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, conversation as epilogue can be... I, I, what what does that mean to you, conversationist epilogue? Like, if it is pillow talk, again, I'm not so interested at this point. Like, I'm just, I, I really do need something, like, warm and cozy. Like, I just need to be quite quiet for a while. And then also conversationist epilogue, like, even if something, like, let's say we, like, went to this amazing concert or something incredible happened. Like, conversation after something wondrous or epiphanic also feels a bit, uh, like, deflate deflated you know what i mean like how could we possibly put into words this incredible thing we've experienced or seen or whatever it is i just feel like that's not where i need conversation that's not where it really feeds me it's leading up to something or it's like that's what we're doing like we are in it we are in the midst of it but to have conversation follow something wonderful and and i should say when i say conversation is epilogue i'm saying also like immediate epilogue i'm not saying like we see or do whatever something wondrous and like months later we can't talk about it but i'm thinking more immediate terms with with all three of these well maybe and i think there's a degree to which i'm being a bit contrarian here just to sort of say something slightly different to you but maybe i could say that maybe marry conversations epilogue because actually a large part of marriage or is that you're you know you share events together like the main event together and mm-hmm. then you then go home with one another and you discuss what you have just Aww. seen um, and so in fact a lot of like married conversation I feel is sort of like the epilogue conversation so it sort of fits the fits the thing like I mean you reflect on this thing um i think that's beautiful oh i'm gonna change my answer <laughs> oh i do that before like convince uh, someone to change their answer 
Uh, I'm gonna, that's going to be mine. I'm going to be a fucking conversation as main event because... Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> the main event's great and exciting. And uh-huh. so you're not necessarily paying attention to... Um, you know, everything that is going on, you're just sort of like in the moment in the main event. Um, And then, yeah, I'm killing conversationist preamble because, and, uh, you know, although I hear what you've just said about like, if you're jumping in there with a great thing, it's the beginning of the evening, that is great. But I also see conversationist preamble as that sort of like, you're edging around, particularly if it's with somebody you don't necessarily know, and Mm -hmm. not someone who's in the kind of group that you're usually talking to okay you've got to go through all of these sort of like the same old routine of, of, of but that's also kind of exciting right like when when you've just met someone and you want them to like you but and you're figuring out like how do i how do i get in you know like how am i <laughs> how am i gonna get you to love me really quick uh, that's a fun that's fun yeah. and then once they love you you know it's kind of like spark is done challenge over you're obsessed with me too <laughs> Yet another fan to add to the list. <laughs> like maybe conversation is preamble to like you know fuck conversation is preamble if you're doing it right. Like sorry. yes, yes. Although that does sound like quite a lot of foreplay with no payoff. Like so. yeah, that's true. It is a lot of effort. Um, but does that mean so that conversation? So what are you killing? Conversation main course? No, I think I'm. I think playing it safe, I'm going to kill a conversationist preamble. Usually I want to always kill every one of the categories. That's always been my problem. But this really is the first time that I kind of just want to marry all of them. Like, I think I, I think I just am obsessed with conversation, which again is why this is crazy that Romer can't make a movie that appeals to me. Like, we, <laughs> Eric and I are on the same page about what's cool about being a human being I think we just disagree about what a human being might be. I think that's fundamentally it. Maybe he was hanging out with a lot of cardboard cutouts who could speak. I'm just going to say, like, you've just got to watch more Eric Roman movies, get into the vibe, because I, too, when I first started watching them, I didn't love them. You, you Why did you help- keep watching them? Um, <laughs> my dad was a big Eric Roman fan. and Okay. Because, also because I think that there is... Like, so I did, you know, I watched a few uh, when I was growing up. And then, but also I think like suddenly, for me anyway, suddenly it kind of like, it all twigged. And I was like, ah, that's what's <laughs> And now I can think of nothing like more, like I'd say no highbrow art that I can think of is more relaxing than an Eric Roma movie. Agreed. <laughs> As I said to you, I was very relaxed, was not worried or concerned. You know what? I Let's agree on that. Eric Roman <laughs> movies are some of the most tranquilizing movies you will ever see. <laughs> and that was We'll Always Have Paris. <laughs> <laughs>